You can find us at learningwithwall.com, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, basically anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find us. Today we have Leo, the CEO of Neural Analytics, a biotech company that has built a device that has the ability to basically permeate your skull to see what's going on in your brain, detecting brain injuries and that type of thing. It's really fascinating. We really get into it, so I think you're all going to enjoy it. We get into how to build a biotech company. We get into his backstory. We get into his hiring practices. There's a lot of knowledge here for people who are interested in biotech companies, interested in the brain, interested in just learning in general. Leo really walks through everything very simply, and I loved it. And I think all of you are going to love it, too. I understand you basically made this technology that uses ultrasound to detect TBIs. And I was wondering, because I understand ultrasound is more soft tissue type stuff. I didn't know it could permeate bone. So I was kind of curious, like, how does that work? Good question. Ultrasound and bone do not mix. Ultrasound historically just reflects off of bone, and that's a known issue with it. Um, that being said, if you use the both the right type of ultrasound configured correctly in the right place, you can sneak through bone. What I mean by that is that, so there's this property which says that the um, penetration depth is, I believe, inversely proportional to the frequency of the ultrasound. So meaning that if you have a really high frequency ultrasound, like let's say eight megahertz, it will not get through bone and it won't actually get through soft tissue very far, right? Versus if you have low frequency, it will get further through tissue. So this is sort of like why bass, like if you're listening to music that has bass, you could feel it in your body, you could hear it through a wall, is that the lower frequency sounds transmit better through media than high frequency does. So the, the trick to getting through um, the skull is first a couple of things. You have to have an ultrasound probe that's configured um, for the task that can only do this one task. It would be terrible at doing things like imaging soft tissue. The second thing is that you're trying to find a, a sneaky way into the into the skull. Now, um, every kung fu movie throughout the 80s taught us that people have a soft spot or a vulnerable spot in their skull, and it's the temple, right? And so what you do is you use a special type of ultrasound, specially configured, and you put it on the temple, and at the temple, you can then find a, a, a fissure between different like bone plates, and you could sneak in through that. It's literally something called the transtemporal access window. And so that's what you're trying to do is you use a special ultrasound in a special location. You could then have to go through the bone. Um, there's actually a couple of other ways into the, the skull with ultrasound. Is One is through the eyes. Um, your, your eye sockets uh, are, are open um, to the to ultrasound and then the others through um if you touch the back of your neck where your neck touches your skull and with your finger you go to the top of that you can sort of feel like this like soft spot or like this peak where the spine hits the skull and you can actually look at the brain through that spot also so so there's there's at least three ways well actually there's another way in but there's at least three ways to sneak into the skull um, with ultrasound. Now, the, the thing about it is that this is like really hard to do. Uh, it takes a very specialized ultrasonographer to be able to properly find the thin spots in the skull. And then once they find the thin spots, then to go find the anatomy that's interesting. Now, 
this type of ultra sound has been around since the 1980s. It was actually developed in I think 1981 or 1982. It's called transcranial Doppler ultrasound. Let me share an analogy that I use frequently, and maybe that'll help too. So this is independent of this is more about the window and less about the frequency. Have you ever tried to look through a window and all you see is your reflection? And then what you do is you come up really close to the window and you sort of cup your hands around your eyes, and then you can you you can now see inside a little bit. Have you ever done that? Yes. So so that is exactly what we do with the ultrasound, right? Is viewed from afar, you cannot see through this media. It literally just reflects the signal carrier. In the case of the window, it's light, right? That's being reflected. But once you get close, and then you actually focus the view, and then you sort of eliminate the the capacity for reflectance, then you can actually get. So so that's what we're doing here with ultrasound. When someone is using this in the field and they're finding those spots, does the device itself help to find the spots? To get through or is it like someone who is trained would know how to find it yeah so so we make multiple versions of our product i i have to provide a small disclaimer we are a fda regulated medical device company some of our products are in market others are not yet in market and if i'm talking about a product in research that that is not a marketing claim right so a handheld most ultrasound systems as a whole i mean you've been in hospital unfortunately so so let's take a step back for a moment if I make this statement, ultrasound imaging is a valuable imaging modality. Is there any ambiguity or any uncertainty around that? I'll argue no. Everybody knows ultrasound is useful. It's used every single day, millions of times a day across the country. So I say to you, Lowell, you're, you're a smart guy. Here's an ultrasound machine. Tell me if that pregnant woman's baby has a birth defect. You're going to look at me and you're going to be like, Leo, I'm a smart guy. I have no idea what to do with this machine. And even if I could get it to show me a picture, I wouldn't know if it was good or bad. So all ultrasound systems are actually a three-part system. It requires a machine, a human to operate it, and a human to interpret it, right? These are three very, very distinct functions. So you'll have a machine, a technician, and a doctor is the most common configuration. So this type of ultrasound, like every other type of ultrasound, requires a human operator that, that's skilled and whatnot. What we do is we actually develop or are in the process of commercializing and developing a guided accessory that reduces the need for a technician to have skill for this to be functional. What I mean by that is it's a, what we do is we substitute in a assisting robot that does the imaging so that you don't have to basically. That's really smart. <laughs> I just, that's, 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 that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so, so the fun thing, do you know what an automated defibrillator is? You ever seen one of those? No, I've seen a defibrillator. I've not seen an automated one. So so a defibrillator in a hospital, if I ask you to close your eyes and visualize a defibrillator in use, what you'll see is somebody's unconscious, an ER doctor is holding these two paddles, rubs them together and says, clear, and then shocks the guy's chest, right? Mm-hmm. That being said, if you, if you go to offices, the mall, airports, or lots of community places where there's a lot of people, you might see on the wall little signs that say AED. And an AED says it stands for Automated External Defibrillator. An AED does the exact same thing that a, a, a human operator does. It just does it without the skills or knowledge or the experience of the operator being relevant. So if you do a quick Google search for AED, you'll see pictures of these things on walls. And literally, it's designed so that any layperson can walk up to one, open it up, and go shock somebody who might be unconscious and be having a heart attack, right? 
And so, so, so the idea is that by making technology less dependent on the skill of the operator, you can increase the access to this technology. Okay? And so that's what we try to do is we take, again, valuable known ultrasound imaging and we try to make it available and accessible to a larger population through automation of the application. That'd be really significant to have something almost that ubiquitous where at a mall or something like that for these situations so that people can know, do we go to a doctor or do you not, or like better definitiveness. That's that's really significant, <laughs> but but you know that, <laughs> but it's just, just wow. Yeah, what we, we, we're really excited about is the fact that, I mean, we know that, we believe that, but it was really nice for us that last year the Department of Defense uh, awarded us a significant contract to develop a point of injury detection system that they could use abroad and domestically in the field. That's something that we're very, very excited about is hopefully being able to address this large unmet need that's affecting a large number of our servicemen and women. Traumatic brain injury is literally the number one injury sustained in and outside of combat. So it's really important for us to to find a better alternative than what's the standard of care today. How big of an impact are we talking on the actual, someone has a TBI, and they have the old way of going about it, how would, how would they progress versus if they had a TBI and then this system was there, either th- like through the military or like something like that, and then progress that way? What would be, how would, how would it look like stack up? Rather than comparing it specifically to TBI, let's try, draw another technical analogy if we might. In the late 70s, early 80s, the CT scanner was just coming out and getting developed and adopted. And at the time, the number one killer in the world, which is still a number one killer, uh, it was heart disease. And people, a heart attack was near fatal basically every single time at that point in time. Now, with the advent of a tool like the CT scanner, what it did was for the next 30 years, literally for 30 years, it allowed physicians and companies to develop better and more effective interventions to treat heart attacks. So that now a heart attack is a much better understood and much better managed condition than it was before the advent of the CT. Every wave of innovation in therapy is preceded by a wave of innovation on in diagnosis or monitoring or triage. And so what we're trying to do here is acutely, we're trying to increase the rate of diagnosis of brain conditions traumatic brain injury being one of them. But long-term, the implica- what we're trying to do is unlock a new wave of therapies to be developed for these conditions. So, so like for example, our system can be used for traumatic brain injury, which is what the military is funding, which is part of our research work today. And that being said, we're also doing work on stroke. So our system can also be used to rapidly detect whether or not somebody suffered a stroke in, in the field or in a hospital. And in that scenario, it's a lot easier to illustrate the value of it. Because, because with stroke, there are really good interventions. So, so to say today in the United States, there's approximately 800,000 strokes. 250,000 of these strokes are severe strokes. Of the severe strokes that occur, quarter million of them, we actually only treat about 25,000 of them. And some large subset of the ones that go untreated, the reason for it is that we cannot diagnose the patients fast enough before the treatment is uh, useless because you've only got about four to six hours to treat a patient for stroke. So long story short, a tool like ours, in this scenario, what we're trying to do is increase the access of patients to intervention through an accelerated diagnostic pathway. So, so ultimately, we'll measure our success as a company, not in revenue or in units, but in number of additional interventions that we unlock the ability to perform. Personally, a really big fan of healthcare as a entrepreneurial and innovation pathway. 
I see that there's there's literally an infinite number of opportunities in healthcare where every single entrepreneur on the planet could pick a different problem. We would never compete with one another and we would not run out of problems to solve. So, so it's a very fun place to, to spend our time or invest our time into becoming domain experts and trying to better our world that way. People talk about business and they're like, oh, ROI, I want like that return on investment. Your return on investment's saving lives or making such a meaningful contribution or impact on their lives that it's noticeably different. There's, there is no better ROI in, in my opinion, and like, you know, clearly your opinion as well. There's a mantra, which is doing well while doing good, which is that you can build a business that does right by the patients, right by the doctors, right by the insurance companies, right by the doc, uh, by the hospitals too, and still be profitable. You're trying to align all the interests. So every, everybody wins in this scenario. In the, in the scenario I said a moment ago, let's say we unlock additional stroke interventions. We would make money by selling our machines to hospitals. But what else happens? Well, the insurance company saves money because treating the patient costs less than taking care of somebody who's disabled for life. The hospital makes money because they actually get paid more for treating a patient than they do for not treating a patient. The doctor profits from this because they get a better outcome for their patient, but they're also compensated for that. And the patient gets the benefit of walking out of the hospital as opposed to being permanently disabled. So ultimately in this scenario, this is literally a win, 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 win scenario where nobody loses if you can unlock better and more interventions for the patients. This isn't costing anybody more afterwards than it did beforehand. And then from our perspective, it's like, great, we can build a business that does a lot of good um, and also does right by our investors. I'm sure in your research, you, you found that medical technology is not something that you can build in a garage very effectively. It takes a tremendous amount of capital to build and commercialize medical devices and medical products. With what you're doing today, what are some of the things, like looking back, that is giving you the, the skills, experiences, the knowledge to be effective at what you're doing today? When we started the company, of our first 10 employees, eight were PhD engineer scientists. And people would ask me, like, why, why do you hire PhD engineers scientists? Do you think they're smarter than everybody else? And the answer was, no, I do not think that they're smarter than everybody else. But it's like, I know I'm getting exactly three things when I hire a PhD engineer scientist that I think are very, very valuable traits in an early stage startup. So, so, so these three traits are three traits that I'm personally a big fan of and I, I think are really, really important um, for, for being a successful entrepreneur. Number one is, uh, complete disregard for failure <laughs> or uh, alternatively stated decoupling of ego from failure. M most PhDs are told that they are wrong or that they failed or they made a mistake or they did something incorrectly thousands of times before they do anything right. When you're running a startup or building a company, you will fail countless times and you have to be okay with it. Okay? That is a very, very important quality to have is a tolerance for failure. And like literally, like if you fail, well, you, you stand up, you brush your knees off, you, you dust your hands off and you say, all right, next idea. That one didn't work. What doesn't work is like people who, if they fail, they, they get distraught or can't get over it and won't move on or they overcommit to something that they even won't know. Number two trait that I think is really, really important, which you talked about in yourself earlier, which is a capacity, a desire, and a willingness to continuously learn. And so um, I can come to you and I'll, I'll say, uh, Lowell, 
what do you know about bond trading in Moscow? And you're like, nothing. I know absolutely nothing about it. And I'm like, great. I need you to do a presentation for 20 people on bond trading in Moscow in two weeks. It'll be about a half hour presentation. Good luck. And I'll walk away from you. In startups, this is a very common thing, which is that a problem will present itself where you have no idea how to solve this problem, but you have access to the repository of all human knowledge. It's called Google and YouTube. Between Google and YouTube, which is another Google company, you can literally learn anything. And so, so that's another thing that I think is really, really important is a constant capacity to want to learn more. The final thing, the third piece of the puzzle, in my opinion, is something I describe as intrinsic motivation. A lot of people, if left to their own devices and you, you give them a Sunday to do something, to, like a free Sunday, they'll watch football. Some people will go find something to do, something productive to do. They'll go build a garden. They'll build a doghouse. They'll go find something productive to do because they're internally wired to want to produce stuff. So, so in my opinion, these are three qualities that I've always found that are really, really important in early stage startups for founders, co-founders, and the teams to possess is the a complete disregard for failure, a insatiable appetite for knowledge and learning, and intrinsic motivation without any external stimuli. Because theoretically, if you're part of a three-person founding team, you don't want to babysit one another. You don't want to be the one responsible for micromanaging one another. The Energizer Bunny, I'm going to send you to answer my question or to accomplish something, and I'm going to forget about this, and I'm going to go worry about a different problem. And those are the things that I, I personally think are really important to get internalized before you start. I guess this kind of leads to the question, when you're doing the hiring, when you're, when you're looking for people to bring into the team, how do you discern these qualities? Do you have like a process that you found to be effective? My cheat code in the beginning of the company was that I'd hire PhD engineer scientists. Because with every PhD engineer scientist, I, I could ask a couple of simple questions and I would know exactly if they were any, if they possessed my, the traits I was aspiring for. I'd ask them, did you have a tough advisor? And if the response was yes, he was a pain in the ass, he was a hard ass, he was like super difficult, that's good. <laughs> um, and then the second question he asked is, how long did it take for you to finish your PhD? And so if somebody had a hard ass advisor and then finished their PhD in three and a half years, you could know that that person can tolerate failure and getting yelled at and things not working out, that they didn't get any instruction and they were still successful, and if you're not intrinsically motivated, you'll never finish a PhD. Unlike like in high school, you're being shepherded to graduation. In college, you're slightly less, but you're still shepherded to graduation. They give you your guidelines, your coursework, and you follow a script. Once you get into a PhD program, there is no script. It's sort of like you're dropped into the middle of a lake and they're like, see you later. <laughs> They don't even tell you to go swim, right? They just say, see you later, and you have to figure out what to do. That being said, that strategy does not scale. Today, we have something like 70-odd employees and 25-ish PhDs. So how do you balance out the rest? So what we try to do is we, we try to look for examples in people's history where they can tell us stories that support the evidence that we're looking. So I'll ask you, I'm like, Lowell, tell me about a, like, a really tough time in your life. And you might tell me a personal story or a work story. And let's say for fun, we'll say, okay, tell me about a really tough time you've had at a job. And then I'll ask you, like, who's the antagonist in the story? How did you deal with the antagonist? And so it's sort of understanding how people deal with conflict 
you can really learn a lot more about who they are personally, as opposed to asking them, tell me about your accomplishments in your last job. And they just sit there and they, they ramble off a list of all their favorite things. Versus if I ask you, tell me about the worst boss you had. What made him the worst boss? That, that's a fun question. I enjoy that question. Like everything else, being mindful. Earlier on in our discussion, we were talking about how if you can invest time, you often will get a higher return on your investment than if you try to rush through things. So interviewing, like everything else, is a process of investing and learning and designing a process that allows you to extract the information you're looking for so that you can make the better decision with the knowledge that you gain. How do you develop such a system so that you don't stagnate? You know, like there's there's books, there's resources, there's talking to people, there's podcasts. But just, have, you ever, have you ever thought of that? And do you have any thoughts that would be fun to hear? So I'm in a unique situation, which is what you're asking about is a culture. And as the CEO of a company, I get to build and create and structure the culture of our organization uh, to support the type of relationships I want to nurture, foster, and behaviors I want to encourage. So, so it's like in, in my scenario, it's I get to rebuild uh, a company in the image that I have for the place I want to work and I want people to want to work, right? Um, but, but yeah, it's, again, it's part of being mindful that you have to structure and build a, a culture that supports what your goals are. So a, a great book on this is, uh, Tony Shea, uh, wrote a book called Delivering Happiness, which is about the evolution and growth of Zappos. Zappos has a very, very, very strong and unique culture. And it's been sort of the cornerstone for the supporting the growth of the company. A number of really good books to read on the subject of culture. But it, the most important thing is, again, be mindful of it and don't ever let it be something that happens passively without your guidance or direction. So I found that if you don't have a plan, then you're just going on what your instinct suggests to do. And your instinct just wants to sit in a corner and eat sugar. And, you know, not do a lot for the most part, like if you could like a horrible rat experiment, but I'm not going to go into it because because basically the rat could get like push a button and they'd feel pleasure. And so like the rat just kept pushing the button until it died. They wouldn't eat. If you want to yeah. do anything that isn't immediate gratification, which is really difficult to envision long term gratification, how to get there. But after you do it a couple of times, I think the, the vision of knowing the gratification is coming can be even greater than which is to say, just like have a plan and keep pushing at it or else you're not going to do what you want to do. And you'll just kind of waste your time. And life. So there's something called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, which was an experiment performed on children, which said you go up to a small child, let's say five years old, and you say, here's a marshmallow. If you don't eat it for like two minutes, I'll give you a second marshmallow. And they found with statistical significance that the children that could wait for the second marshmallow would be more successful in life. So it's this idea of deferred gratification. What you're looking for when you're, let's say, interviewing people for a job is you're looking for a propensity or a history of waiting for gratification. Somebody who went to four years of college, four years of med school, four years of residency, and then a two-year fellowship, 14 years of education to be a doctor, and then finally gets paid one day, is somebody that you can trust that has a capacity for deferred gratification. Versus somebody who at 17 dropped out of high school to go get a job at a gas station has probably less evidence of a tolerance for deferred gratification. So, so it's sort of an interesting phenomenon to look at. In an email or in my research, I forget where I found this, it said that either you got your PhD or one of your degrees in biological application of nanopores. I'm reading it like a, a little blurb because I, I, I wanted to ask this one. 
Nanopores fabricated in a semiconductor substrates. What does that mean, and what is that? So uh, I had the good fortune of earning my PhD as a National Science Foundation fellow as part of a program called IGERT, which is, uh, stands for Integrated Graduate Education and Research Traineeship. But, but it was basically the National Science Foundation, something like 10-odd years ago or 15 years ago now, had this epiphany that they said, like, look, the future of the world is not going to be electrical engineering, biology, chemistry as discrete standalone fields. It's going to be the blend of different fields. It's the intersection of electrical engineering and biology or chemistry and mechanical engineering or blank, 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 right? It's about blending different fields. So what my actual PhD was in is development of a biomolecular sensing platform that was a combination of electrical, mechanical, and biological systems. I'll explain what that means. One of the most important parts of physiology or biology that allows us to function is something called an ion channel. An ion channel, all all of the cells in our body are wrapped in a wrapper called a cell membrane. The Ion channels are basically doors through the cell membrane. And the doors are designed to only let certain things in and out. Some will let calcium in, some will let caffeine in, some will let something else in, whatever, right? There are ones that will let in things like caffeine and nicotine. And it's actually the ion channels that are what gets affected when you get addicted to these substances, right? So long story short, what we did was we developed a technology that allowed us to use a biologically existing sensor, an ion channel, which is what it is, and embed it into a engineered platform and use it as an artificial sensing mechanism. This was part of a defense project to develop anthrax detectors for the Air Force, which is a fun project, which is what we were trying to do at the time, was use a biological sensor inside an electrical system. Now, what what a semiconductor substrate means is, like, if you look at the periodic table of elements, largely stated, there's a class of elements on the right-hand side that are neither conductors nor insulators. They're materials that have four electrons in the valence electron shell, which means that they can be coerced into conducting or they can be coerced into insulating if you manage their behavior well. The most historic prevalent application of a semiconductor is a transistor. Your computer has inside of it a billion transistors. The transistor is what allows it to function and do complicated things. Um, And so all of your computer's functionality is built on a single semiconductor substrate called silicon. And the silicon is manipulated into processing information by modulating its conductivity from being insulating to conducting. Long story short, we use the same technology that people use to make microchips to make a sensor for anthrax. Did it work? Technically speaking, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's confidential. So then, yeah, yeah, we, we don't want the government... To lock us up. No, no. L- l- literally, I, I, I don't know. I The results were never shared with us. That's weird. Does that happen a lot with government stuff? Like you can be researching something, but you won't really see the the outcome? Uh, yes. That's got to be confusing. I like to see how... I don't think I could do government research then. I'd, I'd want to see how it resolves itself. <laughs> I guess I don't do well on the marshmallow thing. Or I'm just too inquisitive. But we know how that worked out for the cat. Well, there's a second part of that statement. Curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. 
Is that, is that really the second part of it? I've only ever heard Curiosity Killed the Cat. Yeah, there's a second part to it. Satisfaction brought it back. Okay. You're teaching me so much today. This is fantastic. On like the spectrum of from like starting from zero to having something that de- delivers something that's effective and like does well, where are you on that spectrum in your opinion? On a scale of one to 10, one being the start, 10 being the finish, I'd say we're around an eight. We've been working on this for five years, let's say. Yeah. You got about like three million from the NIH. And then you've got for funding stuff. And I'm just kind of curious, how does that process go about? Like how, probably goes easier when you have you with a PhD and like a team of PhDs. But I'm curious the actual, how did that work and how did you learn how to do that effectively? So there's a uh, website, if you want to pull it up, it's, I think it's just sbir.gov. So highly encourage you to take a look at this and read about SBIR. Um, SBIR stands for Small Business Innovative Research Grants. And so basically the U.S. has a number of agencies that provide research grants to universities and organizations. This includes DARPA, the NIH, the National Institutes for the Health, National Science Foundation, and various other smaller organizations, right? There's a mandate within all of these organizations, if I'm not mistaken, that approximately 3% of their money must go to companies with the intention of fostering small business creation or, or business formation in the early, in the life cycle of uh, technology. So if you think you're like 3%, that's nothing. But what is it? NIH grant. 2018 budget NIH budget for grants this year is I think it was 30 billion some large double digit billions of dollars so that means that for every billion dollars they're giving away 30 million dollars to small businesses who are trying to develop and make novel technology so if you say let's say if it's 10 billion it's 300 million dollars that 300 million dollars is, is put up for grabs and you apply for it you're on sbir.gov you can literally click on oh, there's a, a mouse where it says funding on top of it means it's funding you click on open they're doing it right now yeah and then there is okay there's an open funding call sbir phase one you click on it and it'll tell you what they're looking for and the sbirs are very very specific calls for uh different programs so and it'll tell you who is putting out a grant for what so like one that i just clicked on is it's from the Department of Commerce, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, and they're looking for something. Um, there's actually, it says available funding topics, advanced man- manufacturing and material measurements. So theoretically speaking, well, if you're like, wow, I have a crazy idea for measuring hardnesses by fluorescence, you can apply to the government and get a grant for some amount of money to fund your project in measuring hardnesses by fluorescence. You can find, uh, even on their website, they have tutorials on how to write grants and grant applications. It's unlikely your first three will be successful, but then eventually you might get the knack of it and you can write better grant applications. So that's basically how it works. Usually phase one SBIRs are, depends on who the granting agency is, but roughly they're around like 100 dollars to $150,000. Phase twos can be anywhere from 300,000 to would be a reasonable range. But yeah, so you have to get a phase one and typically you get a phase two after that. Oh, this is so fascinating. Literally, it is a a pool of government funds that is available for anybody in any organization to apply for. If you just do a quick Google search, writing a winning SBIR grant, like I literally just searched for that, 
how to write a winning SBR grant application in three easy steps is literally the first hit. And you could, you could find a bunch of like resources on how to write good SBIR grants. Google is fantastic. It's the repository of all human knowledge. And between Google and YouTube, it's just incredible. Theoretically speaking, I'm like, you're not a car guy. And you go on YouTube and be like, how do I pull the motor in my blank, blank, blank car? And you will find videos of people showing you step by step how to remove the engine in your car. And you're like, I did not know that I, I could do this, and now you can. Well, thank you for sharing the, the links. I'm going to, when it came to the time to actually, instead of going to NIH to go out and get outside, I, I don't know, outside outside funding, like outside of the government, what was, what was that process like? Is there any insight you could share about that for people who are in that similar stage that are listening? The thing about grant funding is that you shouldn't think of it as a infinite well of free money. The goal isn't just to sit by and idly collect checks from the government and do nothing. The goal is to build a successful business. So, so we had a lot of success because we always paired up our grants with investors. And it helped revalidate for both parties the merit of what we were trying to do. And if, if I come to you and I'm like, well, invest in my company that, that wants to build electric trucks, pickup trucks. We're going to do electric pickup trucks. You're like... I don't know you, your technology is bullshit. I don't believe anything, excuse me for cursing, right? None of this. You have no credibility. I have no idea who you are in Iowa low. Like, why would I even give you a cent? Now, if you walked into a meeting with an investor and you're like, well, the Department of Transport has given us four grants totaling $8 million, and we've developed this prototype concept, and now we need investor capital to commercialize. So suddenly you see that by combining these two resources together, they're worth a lot more then one is by itself. The investor says, oh, Lowell has a track record of accomplishing things. His technology must be reasonable and also the government wouldn't keep funding him. Then the investor might give you some money to go do something. Now, a year later or 18 months later, you'll need more money. And you'll go back to the Department of Transport and you'll say, look, you guys were really, really helpful. We got these investors on board. We made a lot of progress. We'd really like you to continue supporting us. And what they'll see is they'll see somebody who's demonstrated the ability to accomplish things, demonstrated the ability to get external parties to buy into this mission. And then they'll say, okay, you are literally a textbook example of who we want to support. And so they sort of build one on the other. It's the, the way you think about it is that the, the DOT in that scenario would be your equivalent to a customer. And they're validating the unmet need that you're solving and the technology that you're developing in your approach. And then the investor Let's take a step back and talk about fundraising in general. In 2018, people view fundraising or raising capital from investors as what I'll say is, unfortunately, part of our culture encourages us to look at it as a scoreboard. Oh, so-and-so is a great company. They just raised $300 million. So if I was to give you a scenario and I'm like, well, I need you to tell me which one's a better entrepreneur. There's a guy running a company, he's raised a million dollars. There's another guy who's running a company, he's raised a billion dollars in venture cap. Which one's the better company? We, we don't write articles about the guy that raised a million dollars. We write articles about the guy that raised a billion dollars. And so we, we, we put them on the cover of Fortune magazine or Forbes or Fast Company or something or another. And we say, the story of blank, blank, blank company that raised a billion dollars, right? What are you doing that's so remarkable? Now... If two years later, both companies sell for $2 billion, then you say, which company was better? Well, one company turned a million dollars into $2 billion. The other company turned $1 billion into $2 billion. Clearly, the guy that turned one into $2 billion is the better entrepreneur. 
But all along the journey, you wouldn't even know about that guy. They wouldn't be on the radar. They wouldn't be on the cover of a magazine. They wouldn't be interviewed by anybody, right? So, so my first piece of advice regarding fundraising is it's not the goal. The objective is not to raise capital. Keep your eye on the objective. The objective is to build a successful company. And if you need to raise capital to do that, fine. Then you'll go get the capital. But until you know that that's what you need, don't worry about it. If you literally said to me, like, Leo, I want to start a company doing something, I'm going to go raise $3 million, I'd be like, no, that's the wrong thing to do. Go build the company. And until you can't build anymore without outside capital, then go get capital. So then the question becomes, how do you go get capital when you know you need it? It's the right thing to do and it's the right time. And the answer is, like, it's sort of obvious when you put it this way. But it's go talk to investors that are interested in what you're doing. What I mean by that is that, like, if I'm an investor in medtech and you come pitching me Uber, I literally will will pass on it, not because I don't think it's a good idea, but because I have no basis to judge it by. I'm not excited by it. I'm not impassioned by Uber. I'm assuming Uber's pre-billions of billions of dollar valuation, right? Talk to investors that are interested in the domain that you're working in. So, so like, you're working in neurotech. Go find people who've invested in neurotech before and care about neurotech. So what you have to understand is that raising capital from investors is the same process as selling a product. What you're selling is stock in your company for, for money up front, right? And so like with any other product, what you're trying to do is you're trying to align your product offering with what the customer wants to buy. Going to somebody and trying to sell them a truck when they're at Best Buy trying to buy a DVD player is not going to be effective. Going to talk to somebody whose truck just broke down when you're selling a truck is a great time to sell somebody a truck. So, so it's about finding and aligning what you're selling with the right customer and positioning it well. The other piece of advice that is oft overlooked is like, let's say you start a company level and somebody offers you a million dollars and you're like, wow, an investor offered me a million dollars. That's great. Congratulations. Which is really an order that that's really meaningful. That being said, who is the investor is another really, really good question because when you're raising money from investors, you are literally hiring your own boss because these are the people that you are going to be accountable to in perpetuity until the end of this company. And you need to know, is this somebody who I would want to work for? So, so my pieces of advice are, number one, don't raise money until you really need to. It's, it's, it is a required step, but not the objective. Number two is align your sales, your company with the right customer who's buying that product. And number three is choose your investors wisely because you're going to be married to them for, for a long time. That's a good thought process to go through. Frequently asked me, what's the number one thing I've learned in being the CEO or starting a company or whatnot, right? And I always tell them the exact same answer. The, the number one thing I learned is, is always the same whenever I've asked. It's, it's simply this. Invest in defining the objective of every activity before you embark on pursuing it. What I mean by that is, like, before you go off and, and like, let's say you get excited one day, and you're like, I'm going to start a company. And you're like, I'm incorporating, I'm going to look for an office, I'm going to look for co-founders, I'm going to look for this, I'm going to do stuff. Great. Appreciate all the enthusiasm. However, define the objective first and then go at it. Because the act of defining the objective in any process really forces you to rethink 
what are the tactical activities or logistical activities you have to complete to achieve that objective. And that's the most important thing I've ever learned is like, so, so even at the beginning of our conversation, we defined the objective of our call. We obtained alignment between ourselves on how we were going to pursue that objective. And then we went about pursuing that objective. And so it's, I, I always encourage people to, to, to spend the time to define the objective before they embark on the journey. Specific helps you measure your goals as well so that you can not get too burnt out or feeling like you're not making progress. I feel you, as numerical as possible, achievable objectives, that it, it should, A, keep you focused and keep you on that laser-focused objective that you have, and B, as a reward system, like, oh, I made it to this part, things are moving, which sometimes when it comes to long-term objectives, like, you can't see that. You can't see, like, the, the forest for the trees. There's a thing, uh, they're called KPI, Key Performance Indicator. Whether it's for a person or a system, a company, or a product, you have what's called KPI. Lowell's, how many podcasts per month can I perform, right? Like that is your that is a KPI. The growth rate of my listenership is a KPI. The stickiness of my listeners, meaning that they listen to one, they listen to another, that's a KPI, right? So it's defining these KPI. And again, we spend a lot of time defining what our KPI are before we do things. And then we, we ask ourselves, okay, let's say that we just arbitrarily define your three KPI for your podcast. And we say listener growth rate, listener stickiness, and I don't know, like the rate with which you produce material. So we, we, we what we do is we, we bookend and I say, all right, it's a year from now and you've accomplished all three KPI. Your listeners are listening more, you're producing more and they're recommending more. Is that a successful year? Right. And then you have to ask yourself, like, is there anything else? Are those correct? If they are, then let's get to work. But we have to consider what success looks like and then work our way back also. Good advice for people who are listening. It's called interpolation. You have where you are, where you want to be, and you put dots in the middle. So like for us, what we do as a fun activity is we, we talk about a point we want to be at in the future. Let's say we have a goal for three years from now. And you and I will sit down if you're part of my team and I'll say, all right, we're going to write the title line, the subject, the top line of one press release a month until we accomplish this goal. What are, let's say it's three years. What are the 36 press releases that we have to put out for us to hit this goal? And then we say, okay, those are the 36 press releases. This is the sequence that they take place in. Let's figure out how we're going to accomplish those things. I was reading that one of the, it was just how Tesla started their company. They got the patents from people and then they started a company from it, which I believe is what you did with the with UCLA. So how does that process work? If do I have to like go somewhere and look through all their files and be like, hey I like this one. Now what do I gotta like give you to to use it in the future? I'm kinda curious how does that work? As mentioned previously, the government funds a tremendous number of uh, research projects around the country. And so every academic university has a tremendous amount of intellectual property available for licensing through what's called their what might be called their Office of Tech Transfer or their Office of Intellectual Property, right? And so what you can do is, uh, let's say you're in Iowa, um, university, like uh, whatever the biggest university is near you, you can go find their tech transfer office and they will have intellectual property available for licensing. And so you can literally just go in there and find a patent portfolio, talk to a tech transfer office and say, hey, I'm interested in licensing these patents. Now, you're like, why would they talk to me? I'm just a 25-year-old guy about to be 26. Why would they license me this technology as opposed to licensing it to Google, right? 
Well, in reality, in the U.S., we spend a we invest a tremendous amount of money in developing technology, but something like ninety five percent of it sits on a shelf and is never commercialized. So only about five percent of the intellectual property actually ever gets transferred from a university to an outside commercial entity. So all universities are sitting on giant like mines or treasure troves of intellectual property, and they would be more than happy to talk to you about licensing some of it. And so so. There's a couple of really good, well, there were some really good websites that allowed you to aggregate this. However, the one that I'm thinking of, I think it went away. So, so the, the company I'm thinking about, it's called the iBridge Network. So it's www.ibridgenetwork.org. So if you just pull up this website real quick. I got it. Okay. The iBridge Network is just one network of universities. And on the, on the homepage, it tells you, there's 23,220 total innovations that are available and that's available for licensing. And so you can literally mouse over. I went to the bottom right corner and in computer software, there's 3,629. Then subordinate to that, there's academically 1,696. And then you mouse over again and it'll show you like Harvard University Office OTD has 103 patents in computer software that are available. The biggest one is Columbia Tech Ventures has 169. So, 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 so it's like literally like this is a, a simple visual. This used to be a, a, a free tool, but oh, I don't know if it's still free. Yeah. I'm not seeing the numbers, but, but I'm going to make an account and figure it out. So, so in the top right corner, there's a search box. Yeah. And I typed in the word battery. And so, so what you'll see is what comes up is at Wayne University, there's graphene-based support matrix to anchor bifunctional catalyst for lithium air batteries, right? <laughs> and so you're like, that's a mouthful. But if you, if you just scroll, these are all of the patents that have the word battery in them that are available to be licensed. It tells you which company and or university is licensing them. And you can literally contact that university and say, hey, I'm interested in learning more about this patent at Wayne State University on this subject, can you tell me more about it? And so, so, so the iBridge Network is actually really, not every university is a part of this, obviously, but it's one really quick and easy way to look and see in one portal what's available and where. Yeah, no, this is, I typed in brain because I like brains. <laughs> and the first one that popped up is therapeutic for treating TBIs using mitochondria targeted nanoparticles. I'm going to learn about that later. That sounds interesting. Yeah. The, again, it's, it doesn't even tell me what the total number of... Oh, yeah. On brain, there's 1,189 results. <laughs> so, 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 so you're like, okay, that's a lot of technology on brain. I, I, and now, now I'm looking at it. But yeah, so, so uh, <laughs> iBridgeNetwork.org, great place to get started on a hunt. And once you get a little bit familiar with it, then you can you know broaden out to other modes. If, so I'm typing in Stanford... So, so I typed in the word Stanford, and what you'll see is Stanford doesn't come up, right? So Stanford is not part of the network, and I, I thought Stanford was not part of the network, which is why I typed it in. So, so like, if you want to see what Stanford has to license, well, you have to go to Stanford's website itself. Another one, it's like QB3 is the is the commercialization arm of UCSF in Berkeley. Their patents are not on here. But, like, if I type in AZTE, ACTE is has 526 patents. ACTE is the Arizona, I think it's part, it's the Arizona State Technology Transfer Office, and it is on here. So different tech transfer offices have stuff and don't. 
the arguably the most successful tech, tech transfer office in the world is Columbia, I want to say. Columbia, Columbia University, not Missouri, Columbia, but yeah. So, so like Columbia University is not on here. Columbia University Tech Transfer. Yeah. So I just searched, yeah, it's techventures.columbia.edu. And so you just go to the, their website and you can literally just see right on there um, what technologies they have available for licensing. That's awesome. So here's the fun game to play, okay? Open up two, two browsers on your desk. On the left-hand side, open up sbir.gov. On the right-hand side, open up iBridge Network. And then all... It's like on the left you got money and opportunities, <laughs> and on the right you have no, no, seriously. And on the right you have technology. Your job is to connect the dots. That's it. It's it's that simple. Connect the dots. I would imagine you need like a PhD or something. Like, wouldn't they want you to be smart or something? Like, wouldn't? <laughs> not necessarily. It's not a necessity. It, it can help when you're doing research, but it's not absolutely necessary. And it really depends on the field. So, so, so here, what you need to do is just. Again, with SBIRs for, for the free money and whatnot, what, you're, what you need to do is build a application that's credible. So theoretically, if you said that you're going to go pursue this protein biomarker thing or whatever, and I'm like, well, I don't believe you're going to have any success. Well, you'll say, oh, well, I partnered with this guy that's an expert, and he's on the grant with me, and he's going to start this company with me. And so it's this idea that you there's a quote which is something along the lines of to take offenses at criticism is to give the criticism merit in this scenario what i'm saying is that well listen to the criticism the criticism is well you have no credibility in starting a company for improving coronary blood flow and you're like that's fine i'm partnered with two doctors that do have credibility so together we will pursue this opportunity i built a good team no one person has perfect credibility for every application the goal is to build a team that can check off all the boxes when it comes to criticism i think people tend to like shy away from it if you only listen to the nice things people are saying to you which people tend to not like confrontation so they tend to be a little bit more nicer than than honest i found you need the negative with the bad so you can have an accurate worldview broad spectrum sense of like who you are or what you're working on like you need all of it don't don't shy away from criticism because then which is which is kind of like sad when people are like oh I want feedback and then like whenever someone gives them criticism they always rationalize it out it's, no take it in like take take that in like take a moment and like think on it you're saying to like echo your point for people who are sitting listening who are either you know on the fence wanting to get into it or people who have a company and they're like developing it what can we do to be better and to grow other than like being completely hungry like there's are there resources other than the ones that you've listed or books that other than the ones that we've mentioned that you think that would be very effective for people to learn or read, or thoughts, or thought processes that you have that you think would be interesting for people to think about? So, so I'm, I'm going to give my answer and interject two books in my recommendation. Eric Reese, I believe, wrote a book called The Lean Startup. And I believe it was Reed Hoffman who wrote a book called The Startup of You. If we combine the two names of these books, we get The Lean Startup of You. Okay. And the principle in the lean startup is that what we're trying to do with any startup is an iterative improvement process for an organization. The process is build, measure, and learn. We, we, we build something ourselves. We measure how we're performing using some parameters of the desired outcome. We learn where we're strong and where we're weak, and then we rebuild ourselves. What Reed Hoffman, I believe, advocates for is to consider ourselves as a startup and that we are also a project. 
and that we should be sufficiently introspective and see how we are doing in regards to accomplishing our desired objectives and to change and try to complement and supplement ourselves where we are weak and not advancing quickly enough. So it's sort of this fun idea that you think of yourself as a permanent project and that you are the one in control of what, what you're going to experience to drive you to a desired objective. Now, theoretically, things like reading books is part of the process of building a better you. But what books you read is part of the process of learning, like learning about what you want to be and where you want to go to, right? So all three things are important. It's like the investment in, in yourself and learning, the the definition of the objective and the measurement of your progress towards it are all crucial. The other piece of advice that I would interject here is one that a mentor of mine, a gentleman by the name of Professor Al Osborne, who's the senior associate dean at UCLA Anderson School of Business, he's, he, he has a very simple quote. He's like, go play in traffic. His, his mantra is very simply that you will learn more through experience than you'll ever learn by listening or reading or sitting at your computer. He, he, he would rather have you step out of your comfort zone, go try something and fail catastrophically than to have just, you know, sat in your, your home or your basement and read online or read books or listen to podcasts. The idea is basically that you have to eventually step out of your comfort zone and go do stuff. So those are the two things that I think are really important. One, think of yourself as a continuous improvement project. And two, go and experience and try the things that you want and see what the problems are you face. Well, thank you. That's a very thoughtful response. And I think that's a, a great note to end on, you know, that perpetual kind of see yourself as something to be built. Do it purposefully. Make the most of it. Make the most impact. And that's what's great about biotechnology and science in particular, because the impact is measured on how many lives you impact and in effect yep. hopefully in a positive way if you if you design the study right thank you everyone for joining me that was an amazing episode i really enjoyed talking with leo he went into how to build a biotech company point for point anyone who, could, who was following along you could literally pull up the web browser as we were doing it we got into how he developed his technology where he thinks it's going to go we went through quite a lot and so i hope each and every one of you got something special out of this if you enjoyed the episode please leave a review we're on itunes Anywhere you can find podcasts, we have the website Learning with Lowell. I put a blog post on Thursdays, new episodes on Tuesdays, and a mailing list goes live every Monday. So please tune in because I can't do this alone, and I want to bring you more great episodes like Leo's. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.